essential for us to recognize the death of Christ, and we do recognize the death of Christ in a multitude of ways. The preaching of the cross is absolutely necessary for ministers of the gospel. They are not worthy of the title if they do not regularly preach the cross of Christ. Christ himself has commanded us that we will routinely celebrate his death. We do so in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and we do so until he comes again to call us into glory. And also, it's been the practice of the church regularly since the earliest of times and throughout the breadth of the church, throughout denominations, to also celebrate the death of Christ in a Good Friday service. We have an annual remembrance that, that most Catholic and Protestants recognize and continue to celebrate. And there's a reason for that. The death of Christ is the sine qua non of the Christian faith. There is and there can be no Christian faith apart from the death of Christ. Christ offering up himself as a righteous sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God. And without the death of Christ, if we don't have that as part of our religion, then it's just one more oppressive legalistic religion that we possess. We're either serving a God who is less than holy and doesn't demand something so great as the sacrifice of his own son to right the problem of our unholiness, or we have a less than satisfying way of serving our God because we know that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags on his side. We cannot please him apart from the perfecting work of Christ. So we must have a Christ who offers himself. We must have a death of Christ on our behalf. We look this evening again at John chapter 19, those, those verses. Pastor Robbins looked at these last year. We're looking at them again, and many of the same elements will come to light, but also a few other things that are worth mentioning will attempt to do so tonight and so give God glory, and especially the Son, give him that glory which is due him at his death. And so let's pray and let's ask again for the Lord's blessing on his word. Our Father, we thank you for the gathering of us together on this occasion that you have called your saints together in this church on this night to remember a Christ who was sacrificed. And also, Lord, as we remember him, to look and to consider the devotion of the disciples at the cross. Lord, help us to see and help us to likewise follow and even to transcend with our faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Two things, essentially, that I want you to see tonight as we look at this passage that I think are appropriate to come to. And first of that, those is obviously the disciples' devotion that is manifest. It is this determined disciples who come to the Lord Jesus Christ and who are deliberate in attempting to give dignity to him in this moment, this horrifying moment in which he has left this world in the sense of his soul being departed from him. We also come to recognize the disciples' hope, not so much the disciples that are pictured for us here in this passage, but the disciples who pen the Holy Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we would see both those things this evening. In our text, when we first come to it, we see there Joseph of Arimathea. He's the first person we read about coming to, to Christ at the cross. And the Gospels point in a multitude of ways, not, not only John's gospel, but all the gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea. They want to draw attention to him as being this, this figure who shows up, who arrives at this moment. And the things it says about him is that he was a rich man, that he was a good and just man, and that he was one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
It also tells us that he was a member, and Mark in his gospel calls him a prominent member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin. This was the same group who had mere hours before voted to put Jesus to death, to condemn him as a man who had committed sins worthy of death, to be handed over to the Roman government to enact this death. Luke points out in Luke 23, 51, that, that Joseph had not consented to their decision. He's not, he's not agreed with their deed, but he was present as a part of it. You can imagine what it was like for him in those moments he was there and he was in the, this, this group that was raging against the Christ, especially the, the Pharisees. And you know what it's like sometimes when, when, you, when you're in a crowd and there's this momentum that, that, that can't be stopped. You can't prevail upon them to, to overcome them. And you can tell that this is a train that's going down the tracks and you can't get in the way. And so Joseph would have been there. He'd watched this happen, even though internally he was protesting in his mind saying, I don't want this to be the case. It was. And so now he arrives. This time he is, he is actually showing a courage. He's sticking out his neck. He's going to the governor, Pilate, to ask for the body of Jesus. This was something that was very clearly a dangerous thing for him to do. This was something that was putting himself at risk. Why did he do it? Well, John and the other gospel writers tell us, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Christ. But John says that he was so secretly for fear of the Jews. And what reason did he have to fear? Well, going back earlier in John's gospel, chapter 9, verse 22, it says the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ... He would be put out of the synagogue. Your initial reaction to that might, might be, okay, so what? Hey, follow Jesus. But this, this, was, this was the church. This was the only church, if you were a Jew, to, to be a part of. And to be put out of it was to be put into the category of people, of sinners and tax collectors, those who had no standing whatsoever in society. Those people that were tolerated at best, but who were hated as a way of, 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 of being... Respected in society. They, they, they lost everything that they would have. And his place as a prominent member certainly would have been forfeit were it known that he was a follower of Christ. Again, in John 12, we read verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Joseph had been silent. Joseph had been silent perhaps at key points. But now he is risking everything to come to Jesus and to come to Jesus and to care for him in his death. And it turns out he's not going to be alone. We look back on the text and we see in verse, 30, verse 39 that there is also Nicodemus. And it tells us in the text a, a specific point. It says this is the Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. It reminds us that there was an earlier time where, where Nicodemus had approached Jesus. And we, we see that, that time. And if you have your Bible, turn back to John chapter 3 to, 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 to look at that time with me. On that first occasion in John 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he is, he is trying to, to learn who this Jesus is. And, and instead of learning merely who this Jesus is, which he certainly does that, at least in part, what he fully understood and comprehended certainly seems to be something waiting in the future. But he comes to Jesus and he also learns about himself. In that passage we read in John 3.3, 3, it says, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus is very confused by this answer that the Christ gives him. How can a man be born again? And Jesus goes on to explain what he means. And if you look at verse 13, we see a particularly important part of it. He says, or John, John chapter 3, verse 12. He says, If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What didn't make sense to, John, to, to Nicodemus in, the, in that first meeting that John records for us is going to become more clear. And, and this is a moment where we're now at the cross is that Nicodemus is approaching a, a right and a true and a full understanding. He's beginning to, to have to see these things and to wrestle with these things. That Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. As he testified, that Jesus was lifted up. And that lifting up was going to be on the cross where he would die. And that whoever believes in him could have their sins forgiven and because of him have eternal life. Nicodemus is is having to, to face these things again and they're going to become clear to him in time. But what is clear here is that, that, that Nicodemus loves Jesus in this moment, that he wants to honor Jesus in his death, knowing that, that he was wrongfully convicted. And so now Nicodemus is here before the sun goes down in light to honor Jesus. I think that's relevant as well. Continue to look in John 3, verse 18. It says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Imagine this, this is Nicodemus in John 3 who has come to Jesus. When has he come? He's come at night. And what does Jesus condemn but those who come at night? But then he adds this in verse 21. He says, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, and that they have been done in God. Nicodemus wanted a secret meeting, a secret meeting in darkness when he first came to him, but now he is forced to come to Jesus in the light. He's coming because the Sabbath day is approaching. And now there's a race against the clock to, to, get, to get Jesus literally down from the cross, to prepare his body for burial and to get him into the tomb before the daylight ends. And the Sabbath begins. And Nicodemus, strangely enough, whether he understands or not, he is fulfilling that scripture in coming to Jesus in the light that his deeds may be seen. And his deeds are seen and they're recorded for us that he was there in that moment for the Lord Jesus. Coming publicly to that cross, lifted up on that hill to go to Jesus in the light and to to retrieve his body. And along with Joseph, to give it that dignity and that honor that it deserved Again, when he came, we see, we see that he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. 
So here, both of them, Joseph risking his status and his credibility, making these ceremonial preparations to prepare the body of Jesus and risking his own ceremonial preparation for the Sabbath. And likewise, Nicodemus comes and he brings with him a hundred pounds of burial perfumes. This is an enormous amount. This is, this is in the category, the realm of the way that you would anoint the body of a king. In some sense, he is, he is recognizing that here is Christ who is a king worthy of the honor of a king. And so is Joseph providing for him in the way that they do. And this is part of the hope of the disciples. Not, not the, these two disciples on this occasion, but the disciples who would write Holy Scripture for us and for the disciples who are in this room. It says in verse 41, as we reflect on the disciples' hope, that there, it says, Now in or at that place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We should take a moment to reflect on the fact that it was a garden to which the body of Jesus was brought. The, the body of Jesus was going to go in death to a garden. And anytime we hear a garden in Scripture, we should go back to that first garden. We should be reminded that in the very beginning, there was also a garden in which man lived in perfect fellowship with God. And there was an arrangement. There was an obedience required. There was a probation in which, in which man had to obey God perfectly. And there was one thing that he was not allowed to do, which was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. But we know in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And after that, sin and death became plagues, not only upon them, but upon the whole world. God pronounces Genesis 3, 19, in the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Eve has promised pain and death and labor in bringing forth children. He would go on to say not only to Eve, but also to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's so now in the, this garden, in John 19, we are seeing that, that, that same death sentence coming, but this time coming to the one that was most undeserved for, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now his body coming down from that tree is going to be placed in this garden. But that promise to the serpent, God speaks, speaking to, to Eve, who would be the mother of all living, that she would have a seed. That her, she wasn't going to die immediately as she deserved. That she would continue to go on and life would come forth from her. There would be a seed that comes after her. And one of those seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. In this moment in John 19, it's not so obvious that that would be the case. It wasn't obvious then. It's not obvious now. But it's absolutely necessary that in the garden, this time, the serpent was going to be defeated once and for all. And this is the hope of the disciples, that the promises of God, the prophecies of Christ, that they are all true. And this is the way that it had to be. Listen to one more verse from our passage in John 19. It says in verse 42, So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. 
Joseph and Nicodemus and likely a handful of servants along with them. Later, we know at some point the women are going to come as well. They're going to take the body of Jesus. They're going to carefully place it into a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This was very likely commissioned by Joseph, perhaps for himself, a place where he might be buried as a, as a wealthy and a prominent man. It was a, it was a precious location, precious real estate. It was actually near to the city, which would have been difficult to achieve a, a graveside so close. What was ordinary, of course, as you heard before, is that for the body of a criminal who died on the cross, is they would have been taken to a field, perhaps buried in a shallow grave, but most likely not even that, and left for dogs to carry off. But here was one specially prepared, something that was prepared for a wealthy man, a cave that was literally carved out of rock, made for a body after death so that it would be guarded and protected and given dignity so that no bad actors could come and take away and do any damage to the one who was inside. And this was a rich man's tomb. The expense was real. And yet here is Joseph sacrificing this to make a place for the Lord Jesus. He saw no shame, and perhaps because these was typically the case, that he would be buried there himself. He would not be ashamed in death to go be near Jesus. If only he knew what was involved in that. Isaiah foretold, and what would give us instruction, and this was the promise that they most needed to cling to. Isaiah 53, 9 says, and, that, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence. And think how appropriate this is. How fitting it is that, that when Jesus died, he, he dies among the wicked. He's among the most notorious of criminals dying the death of the cross. The crucifixion. That, that which, which Romans even deigned to speak of. It was so shameful. And there was Jesus beaten publicly, stripped naked, nailed to the cross, lifted up for everyone to see. Making it the most indignified place you could go in order to die, everyone who sees you would think the absolute worst of you, and they couldn't see you in any other way but with shame. This was the wicked man's grave. But here, in, in, in just moments after his death, now his body has been taken down and repaired with great dignity, treated as if he were a king, being going to a place where kings might be buried in this garden. He was among the, the wealthy, the well-known, the respected and dignified men in Joseph and Nicodemus. And isn't it appropriate that, that Jesus should be so near to both of those groups in death? The wealthiest and most honored and the most undignified and most notorious. Doesn't it speak to who he's able to save? The work of the cross, what it accomplishes, how the atonement of Christ is, is sufficient for all who come to him. And we do well to go on and to continue to listen to Isaiah. Turn your Bibles back to Isaiah 53, verse 4. And we hear these, these very familiar verses, but give us the context for the cross. That gospel preaching of Isaiah, beginning in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, when he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The thought was at the time that, that Jesus was, was dying to, to make a peace between Jews and Romans. He, he's stopping any, his death will stop any talk of sedition. We get rid of this man who, who is being called a king, make him go away, and then, then we won't have a problem with, with our authorities. But Jesus was laying down his life. And it was to accomplish so much more than to make peace between Romans and Jews. It was to make peace between God and man. It was for the transgressions of his people, all of his people, Jews and Gentiles, all the elect. He would justify many, a multitude, and bear their iniquities completely. They would, all their sins would be removed in this death. And then, of course, we look again the fact that it was a borrowed tomb. This was a tomb that did not belong to Jesus. It came from the rich. Jesus didn't own it. He wasn't rich in the world. He was in poverty in his birth, laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. He was poor in his life. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He did not get richer in his death. The only way for him to have this kind of a tomb was to borrow it, was to, to receive it from someone else. But who borrows a tomb? What a ridiculous thought to borrow a tomb, to go in and come out. That's not how it's supposed to work, except in this case it does. If we look back at John 19, we look at those verses and just following it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb and then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and they said to them they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb we do not know where they have laid him I'll leave the punchline for Sunday but it's good the tomb was going to be empty. It was appropriate to borrow a tomb because it did not be, need to be a permanent resting place. Luke 24, they were told the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified that he could rise again the third day. And so Jesus, by his work, fulfills the law. He does all that's required of him by the Father. He completes what work he was called to is able to say on the cross to tell us it is finished because the work was complete. The question is, how do we respond to this? Well, we need to be encouraged by the disciples at the death of Jesus. 
particularly the two disciples that we read about in, in, in verses 38 to 42 of John 19. Remember the, the context just moments before, just hours before preceding this, you had had the 12 disciples who were scattered, who, who ran away at the arrest of Jesus. You had Peter, the, the, the nearest, closest disciple, denying Jesus three times to have even known him and to have anything to do with him. You have the whole city when just a week before on Palm Sunday they had been rejoicing him, returning to an angry mob and yell, crucify him. Beg for, for Barabbas, this, the notorious man, to be released and to have Jesus be crucified. And yet in these moments that we read about in verses 38 to, to 42, here are Joseph and Nicodemus, disciples who are showing up without caution. John Calvin commenting on this, he says, It is therefore certain that this was effected by a heavenly impulse, so that they who through fear did not render the honor due to him while he was alive, now run to his dead body as if they had become new men. Calvin would indicate there's not merely a recognition of the innocence of Jesus, that this was inappropriate, but there was something more that was going on, that there was, there was a conviction at who he was. And it produced self-denial. It produced holy boldness so that they come running to the cross. Their lives and their livelihoods take a back seat to honoring Christ in this moment. And it is fulfilling what Christ said in Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? They abandon hope in themselves and they come running to the cross. It seems late, but it's not never. J.C. Rowell also commenting on this passage, he, he, he says something that, that may make us a bit uncomfortable, but I think it's useful and encouraging. He says, let us hope and believe that there are many Christians in every age who, like Joseph, are the Lord's hidden servants unknown to the church and the world, but well known to God. Even in Elijah's day, there were 7,000 in Israel who had never bowed the knee to Baal, although the desponding prophet knew nothing of it. Perhaps at this very day, there are saints in the back streets of some of our great towns and in, or in the lanes of some of our country parishes who make no noise in the world and yet love Christ and are loved by him. Ill health or poverty Poverty or the daily cares of some laborious calling render it impossible for them to come forward in public, and so they live and die comparatively unknown. Yet the last day may show an astonished world that some of these very people, like Joseph, honored Christ as much as any on earth, and that their names were written in heaven. After all, it is special circumstances that bring to the surface special Christians. It is not those who make the greatest show in the church who are always found the fastest friends of Christ. At this moment when it counted, you see disciples showing up, friends of Jesus, honoring him in death. We should be encouraged at his death to come and honor him, and this is what you're doing tonight. But we should also be further encouraged by the hopes that true disciples have, those gospel hopes that belong to us, that things that, that weren't yet clear perhaps to, to Joseph and Nicodemus. The gospel writers, those disciples who are moved by the Holy Spirit, they grant us hope in the promises and prophecies about Christ. They remind us to come to Jesus in the light, that we might have the light, the true light of the world. They remind us that at the death of Jesus, that he was still a true king, a true king worthy of the honors of the king, because he is the only king, eternal. 
immortal, invisible, the only wise God. They remind us that our Savior told us that he must be lifted up and that it was necessary that he die and that he die on the cross. He was lifted up to draw all men to himself and we are they. They reminded us that it was at the cross where Jesus would finish his work. It would become complete. They remind us that Jesus had to go to the grave. Verifiably with a multitude of witnesses that he might rise again from the dead. And they did remind us that it was in the garden that death came to all. It was also in this garden of death that life would come to all. This place where people would go to die and be buried would be a place where life would spring forth eternal. We need to be encouraged by the borrow of the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Each one in its own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are his at his coming. He adds this, he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And so tonight we honor the death of Christ. We acknowledge the death of Christ because it must be from death that life comes in God's economy, in his redemption, his salvation that he's accomplishing for us. Believing that he died means that we know that in our death we shall also rise again. Praise the Lord for that. Come tomorrow as we begin the Lord's Day in worship. We celebrate the risen Lord Jesus. And now let us pray this night. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for your eternal plan of redemption, for your design to send your Son on behalf of sinners such as ourselves. We bless your great wisdom and your great power that there is no hope lost in Christ going into the grave because the grave could not hold him. Oh Lord, let us count his death as precious in our sight. Let us cling to it that we may have life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.